Welcome to Democracy in Question, the podcast series that explores the challenges democracies are facing around the world today. I'm Shalini Randeria, Rector President of the Central European University in Vienna and Senior Fellow at the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. My guest today is Michael John Hastings, Lord Hastings of Scarisbrick. Son of an Angolan father and a Jamaican mother, he graduated from Oxford and began his career as a school teacher, but then joined the government to support policy initiatives for employment and development to Britain's inner cities in a period marked by urban riots. He worked for the BBC as head of its public affairs and then as its first head of corporate social responsibility. Lord Hastings has held prestigious positions as a trustee of the Vodafone Group Foundation, as vice chair of the World Economic Forum Agenda Council, and is also currently the chair of the School of African and Oriental Studies Board of Trustees. In 2002, he was appointed commander of the Order of the British Empire in recognition of his services to crime reduction and his work with the Commission for Racial Equality. He's also an active member of the British Parliament, as in 2005, he became a life peer in the House of Lords. The House of Lords has held an important debate on the current state of democracy earlier this year. I will revisit with Lord Hastings some of the key arguments and insights from that debate in order to reflect on democratic backsliding in many parts of the world. Of course, we'll also talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how it may have changed his views on the precarious state of liberal democracy. And we'll discuss why many autocratic regimes paradoxically enjoy so much popular support and legitimacy. Finally, of course, I'd like to talk to him about the positive generative potential that a moment of crises such as the Brexit or the Ukraine war may hold to ask today about the possibility, even the necessity of rethinking democracy. It's a great pleasure to welcome Lord Hastings to today's episode. Michael, a very warm welcome to you and thank you so much for taking the time to join me for today's conversation. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. When we met earlier this year, I was struck immediately by your mention of the long debate on the contemporary threats to democracy in the House of Lords. At this debate on the 3rd of February 2022, it was noted that democracy is in retreat, authoritarianism on the rise, as non-democratic countries outnumber democratic ones worldwide for the first time in 20 years, and that democracies are quite fragile and vulnerable, vulnerable to hijack both by autocrats, but also by kleptocrats, who once they assume power through democratic elections, then begin to dismantle the fundamental building blocks of liberal democratic institutions. So let's begin by understanding how and why this debate was initiated in the House of Lords, and what were the stakes of having such a debate, in particular in that setting? And if you could outline the main positions, the fault lines, if there were any, in this debate, and what are the kinds of conclusions that were arrived at in the House, we can then begin to unravel the questions from there. Well, it is kind of ironic that the unelected 
non-democratic upper house of the British Parliament debating, discussing democracy. But after all, we may well be unelected, non-democratic, but we do feed in the same trough as the elected chamber of the House of Commons. The debate was central to understanding exactly why it's important to retain this kind of balance. One of the assumptions of democracy is that the best results come from elected positions. Let the people have their say. Well, the people had their say in the United Kingdom over Brexit. That led to a cataclysmic departure from a common framework of security and defence and business and network and alliance and education and trade and common relationship with the European Union, which was built up on the back of what had been the cataclysmic wars of the previous century. So here we are out on a limb because of a democratic decision. But that was not a wise decision in my judgment and in the judgment of so many others. If the assumption is that democracy is always best because the people always vote the best, well, that hasn't followed in our case. And so it was necessary for the House of Lords to stand back and say, around the world, there are emerging crises of uncertainty. We've seen the terrible outcomes of what the imposition of democratic will has been from the Western nations towards North African countries, the Middle East, and of course, Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, once we stand back from that, we have to say, does democracy not only lead to better decisions, but also more humane actions? No, not necessarily. There is a need to recognize that the world system, which was put in place after the Second World War, in order to protect security and defend democracy and build civil society has shown it's incapable of standing up effectively to tyranny. I'm going to quote, if I may, if you'll allow me to, from Andriy Yermak. Andriy Yermak is the head of the Office of the President of Ukraine. Writing in Time magazine, he says these words, the current international security system has nearly expired. It's rotted through its remains have collapsed and buried the world order beneath it. Trying to revive it is futile. Here we are at this point where we're now, when we began this conversation some months ago in the House of Lords, not discussing Russia-Ukraine, but now we have to centre around Russia-Ukraine. And, and the irony is we are looking on a UN system of democracy, the UN Security Council, where every member has a vote, and there are five permanent members. And in that democratic structure, we can do nothing about Russia. Nothing at all. We cannot act against, ironically, a once fully democratic state to remove it from the control center of the world. So fundamental to the problem of democracy is the way we've thought about democracy is the assumption that democratic decision-making and decision-makers are the best of class. And too much increasing evidence shows that democratic systems falter 
and fail, not because it's a bad idea, as Churchill once said, it's the best of all the worst ideas, but because the people who must exercise it are either ill-informed on the electorate's case, poor decision-makers on the decision-makers' case, and then the systems of global governments created for a once highly fragile world are now totally broken. So we need to reconstruct, and that would imply a reconstruction of democracy. So that is a really uh, wide range of issues which uh, you have raised here. Let me pick out one or two to just loop back to the House of Lords debates and then talk about two of the issues that you just raised. So were there any differences of opinion in the House on some of the questions that uh, you have just delineated, such that political allegiances, party lines, or um, ideological commitments, which one would expect would normally shape one's understanding of democracy, uh, did they play a role in any of the opinions expressed? Or did you find a fair amount of consensus on both the nature of the diagnosis of the crises and what we could be doing to solve it? Oh, a complete consensus. There was complete consensus across all sides of the House who participated in the debate on democracy. And at the centre of the consensus was a clear view, absolutely crystal clear, that you can only bring effect to good democracy if the character and nature of its leaders are both benign, generous, constructive, humble, purposeful, and public service orientated. But what we have tragically witnessed, including in our own case here in the United Kingdom, is political leaders voted in for a purpose maybe based on deceits, Brexit, oven ready, get it done, life is easy, all problems are solved. And then both chaotic decision-making, absence of clear purpose, and holding the public to ransom on false promises that can't have good effect. And that absence of good caliber and character is what, of course, undermines our democratic decisions. Now, we also have to look at other places in the world. And we looked at the outcomes of four years of President Trump, which was an insurrection, essentially an attempt in Washington, D.C. on January the 6th to overthrow the legitimate elected new presidential system for Joe Biden, but to do that by public outrage. But that public outrage was driven by people believing something that they convinced themselves of that was not factually, scientifically, or even democratically based. And now we sit in a situation where a third, so we're told by pollsters, a third of America's population believe that the election of of President Biden, and therefore the non-election of President Trump, was a stolen election. If a third of your people believe that, and they don't accept the processes of democratic decision-making, democracy cannot function. You're absolutely right. And I'm afraid uh, the kind of disinformation which led both to Brexit and to the January 6th insurrection is uh, here with us to stay unless we are able to take measures to inform uh, our citizens better. But let me turn to another aspect of what you said before, which really uh, struck a 
chord with me, and that is how vulnerable do you think is the liberal democratic status quo embodied by the North Atlantic hegemony of the US, the EU, and the NATO, which is on the threshold, I think, of a new Cold War, if not a world war? And can liberal democracy, as we have known it, survive these attacks with the growing number of authoritarian leaders, not only in the Middle East, but also in EU member states, for example, in Hungary. But at the moment, what we are seeing also is Turkey blocking within the NATO any attempt by Sweden or Finland to become uh, members of the alliance. Can it be fixed is the, is the really important question. Can it be fixed? Now, all the surveys undertaken for the World Economic Forum on an annual basis by Edelman, show collapsing faith in governments, at one point collapsing faith in business, and then collapsing faith in media, and the only institutions where faith was being upheld were public service organisations, foundations, charities. Government is meant to reflect the best intentions of the people's key instincts to support one another and to enable one another to thrive, for families to be able to have children who can be well-educated and develop a society to the future, and therefore for the old to feel protected and not abused by a generation coming behind them. So a supportive circle. But as governments have increasingly failed to deliver social value goods every year, when surveys come out and look at which countries emerge as having the strongest social cohesion, it is normally the Nordic countries the Denmarks, the Finlands, the Norways, the Swedens, they emerge with the strongest consensus because they have democratic systems, but strong public social service structures. So the purpose of democracy, if the purpose of democracy is to ensure better, more realistic equity so that people feel their lives work, then democracy delivers. But in the case of the United States, the United Kingdom, a number of other countries, where the differentials between the very rich and the very poor get wider and wider, where executive pay, particularly in the United States, gets more extreme year by year, where privileged people can live exceptional lives and the vast majority live struggling lives, then democracy is fundamentally failing. So, uh, Michael, may I refer you back to the Brexit discussion and link that observation of yours? And I think you're absolutely right. Democracy must deliver. And one of the things it should deliver is equality of uh, opportunity, of dismantling of privilege. So let me link that to your observation on Brexit, because Brexit, after all, was the result of a referendum. The vote was split. It was a polarized country. Brexit got through by a thin margin, but nevertheless, the result of a democratic referendum. And normally, one would say referenda are probably among the purest forms of democracy, because they are really allowing people to voice their opinions. Of course, we saw, as you very rightly pointed out, the voice and the will of the people manipulated by unscrupulous uh, politicians, aided also, let's not forget, by Russians in this uh, particular instance. Uh, But nevertheless, the question for me there is, do you think the fact that one had paid so little attention to this question of equity, of equalizing living conditions uh, in the United Kingdom, Was that one of the grievances which really fed into 
the negative vote for the European Union, although the European Union, I think, had little to do with it. But the uh, resentment against growing inequality, unequal life chances, the lack of provision of public services because of austerity politics of many, many years in the United Kingdom, that got mobilized to fuel uh, an anger against the European Union, which actually it had very little to do with. You're exactly right, Shalini. There were backdrops and circumstances and causations that had undermined the public's belief that their their relationship with the European Union, their involvement in the European Union, was ultimately beneficial. And they inappropriately blamed open borders policies and uh, and an and economic system that was about shared resources, so enabling the less privileged uh, parts of Europe to benefit from the more privileged parts of Europe, that the public blamed that on their own vulnerabilities and the fear that there were going to be more and more and more people with fewer resources coming to beg at their door. So rather shut the door now fast before more get in, even the profound deceit that there were going to be up to 100 million Turks coming across if Turkey got in to the European Union. Where are they going to all find their way? They'll all find their way to London, to Manchester, to Birmingham, and they'll take our benefits and take our jobs. That kind of fear-mongering from people who haven't believed in the common good or seen the outcomes of the common good was easy to stoke. And it was stoked. Here we are two years on. Ask any minister of the government to give you a list of five benefits of exiting the European Union. It's a struggle. It's a severe struggle. We highlighted that in the debate, that you may be able to point to certain things done, for example, with easier access to vaccines in the United Kingdom than the rest of the European Union. But frankly, after a couple of months, they caught up. And it wasn't that it was a long-term deficit. It was just an organizational problem. But when it comes to the need, the bigger picture need, which is to hold the world together in a common consensus of peace and order to respect the dignity of the lives of the most vulnerable. We only do that when we work strongly together. That's what the United Nations was effectively all about. When we work collectively together, in common partnerships together, we deliver peace, security and well-being. So if we allow deceit attacks on our own economic position to overwhelm us, we then become defensive. And then we turn on the basis of those deceits to attack the person we perceive who might take our benefit away from us. That is partly what Brexit false promises, misinformation, a whole lot of hype associated with the great string of benefits that would immediately flow. And nobody can point to what they are. And actually, the British government is quite rightly having to work in tandem and consultation on security issues with other European nations and on defence issues with other European nations, and on economic issues with other European nations. It would have been easier if we'd stayed in the centre. We're not there now. We're out. The deal is done, but not finished, as we said. So here's an opportunity for a mature realignment, and for the UK and the European Union to ask themselves, how can we improve on this position, rather than just stand on the back of what happened in 2016? Because if democracy is meant to be dynamic, lessons are learnt get it right. Don't just sit on the position. It was 2016 when the poll was 52-48. Subsequent polls in 2018 to 2020 showed a flip on the reverse. The public began to realise that what they thought was the great promise of Brexit was not the reality. 
Now, mature politics would say, in a democracy, listen to the now voice of the people, not the then voice that was based on misunderstanding. But one of the problems of modern democracy, Shalini, and this is a fundamentally important issue that we discussed in the debate, is that politicians get stuck on the hook of their own ideology. And you can't have effective equity and good democracy if you remain stuck in the glue of what you once said or did. You must move forward and you must look at the world for the way the world really is. And true democracy means I must listen every day, not just listen to what I said way back on that day. That's very, very true. I mean, democracies are self-correcting, unlike autocracies. So therefore, there lies one advantage of the democratic form of government. But of course, the individual politician finds it difficult to get himself out or herself out of an earlier position. But Michael, I want to go back to another point which you made when you said one of the fears that was fueled in the Brexit uh, campaign by the pro-Brexit side was millions of Turks um, invading United Kingdom. The Turks didn't come, but those who did come were the oligarchs. In the context of the Ukraine war, which you have also spoken about earlier, what does strike one is the number of oligarchs close to the Kremlin. So not only those who have fled uh, Russia because uh, they were uh, anti-Putin, but the ones who were close to the Kremlin, who have lived for many years in the safe haven of Greater London, which became a magnet for illicit wealth. Can you say something about uh, whether and how the war and the sanctions have changed attitudes towards not only these particular individuals who are on the sanctions list, but towards political parties which were quite happy to receive donations from many of these people, but also a system in which uh, firms in London, uh, professionals in London, banks in London were very happy to take in the money that these Russians were bringing in. What has changed? (laughs) Well, I think we'll only know in a decade what has changed, to be honest with you, Shalini. It's one thing to have means of objection, quite another thing to know whether they've worked. And I'm not going to defend the fact that, uh, as some would say, London the grad uh, was a great receiving point for Russian oligarch money. So is Monaco in France. Uh, So is Switzerland. So are parts of Bavaria and Germany. Let's not pretend that this is a British problem. It's not. We need to recognize that the capital system that we operate in, which allows the easy transfer of cash resources across boundaries and allows the purchase of property and investment in key assets, works right the way across the democratic world. So London has been particularly attractive because of our property laws and because of freehold. Uh, and that is primary benefit for those who choose to invest here. But we're not the sole players in a world game in which money hides itself in multiple centres, in democratic systems, which, of course, advantage the rich. It is deeply unfortunate, but what it speaks of, Shalini, to go back to the point. Now, political leaders will often say the first duty of government is the protection of their people. That's often interpreted as protection means borders and boundaries. But the most important protection day in, day out is can people heat their homes? Can they feed their children? Can they get good education? Can they walk securely in the street? Uh, Do they feel their health needs will be met? And if that is the case, the real 
security and freedom are about day-to-day well-being, then we should focus on those priorities first, social development and security go hand in hand. Without that, what we end up with is the privileged few, wherever they come from, finding their places to buy up, whether it's in Switzerland or it's in London. So let's pick up one other strand of the discussion earlier, and which is media. I think one of the things we would agree to is not just Brexit, but one of the major threats to liberal democracy is because of the ability of uh, media, especially social media, to generate falsehoods. They are able to also generate a lot of uh, resentment by the kinds of algorithms and systems that the uh, media companies have built up. You have been very closely associated with the BBC, the public broadcasting company, which is really exemplary for uh, independent media. I think uh, for those of us who grew up in uh, other parts of the world, I grew up in India, I grew up listening to the BBC uh, radio. My entire childhood was spent uh, first looking at the listener, the wonderful uh, magazine of the BBC, which was delivered to the doorstep uh, those days, because otherwise we only had a state-owned media. So the coveted independence of a media is something that has really come under major attack. And in the case of the British one, BBC itself has been under attack. What are the main lessons you would like to draw from the whole attack, not only on the independence of the media in so many uh, European countries, Eastern European countries as well. Russia is, of course, the extreme example. But I think we are seeing everywhere a decline in both the quality of media, the independence of the media, but also through the concentration of ownership in media. And I think that is a serious danger to democracy, to democratic uh, decision-making, but also to information that is available to citizens. You're absolutely right. And the the necessity for highly structured, well-resourced, well-informed, journalism and intellectually pursuing programming that allows us to understand the complex world we live in and how we need to respond to the detail of its issues rather than face disasters and wonder why they happened, that necessitates a public expenditure commitment. Most governments would rather rely entirely on commercially resourced media. You mentioned quite rightly the strength and quality of the BBC. And I was so thrilled to have been head of public affairs at the BBC for 12 years and to have defended the BBC's constitution, its charter and its license fee funding system, because that allows independence of non-publicly resourced public service media. It must cater to audience demand. And if that audience demand is entirely trivial, we then lose the ability to learn to know, to see, to understand, to perceive. As we've always seen, whenever autocratic leaders want to impose their will, the first thing they do is cut away at the right of journalists and independent media organisations to have their say. Clearly, we saw that happen in Russia. This control of the narrative means that it's important to control the mind of the public. So independent national journalism and independent international journalism is fundamentally vital. 
to the security and well-being and sincerity of our democratic systems, holding them to account. The fundamental weakness of democracy as we sit here today is it relies on the public making informed, consistently intelligent decisions. But where are they to get that intelligent decision-making? It must come through individual pursuit, of course, but also public media institutions, which help us to understand the world as it is and needs to be. And so we need independent, intelligent media that helps us to think, challenges us to make different decisions, and then to hold those decision makers we elect to account. We've uh, talked now at length about all that ails liberal democracies today. Let's try and end, if we can, on a more optimistic note. The question, I think, would be the crises of democracies um, worldwide. Are they able to provide some avenues for a more self-reflexive, self-critical exploration, which could lead to some sets of possible remedies against this popular disenchantment with mainstream politics and also uh, largely discredited political parties. So the question um, would be, how can we nurture and even reinvigorate our democracies today? Can we unthink some of their features? Which features could we reshape? Is decentralization of democratic decision-making to local levels one of the remedies? Where do we go from here? Well, you certainly hit upon one of the essential solutions, which is to decentralize and increase local democracies. The closer democratic decision-making is to the people, where they live, their immediate geographies, the more effective it can be. But here we are in the midst of a European war, and we've needed to see governments at national level learn how to function and to work together. So local democracy, fantastic. We need more of it. We need grown-up political leaders. Now, how are we going to get from where we are now to where we need to be? A consensus amongst democratic leaders, world leaders, and I possibly position that maybe Davos is the one place that may happen. The rich countries of the world have consistently underinvested in the next generation and the generation that needs to come after them of quality, credible, effective decision-making political leadership. I mean, you only have to look, sadly, at the United States to see the creaky age-old figures who come round time after time, uh, and we're seeing in other parts of the world, that there is just not enough energy put into the development of another generation of people of perception and insight and political history and wisdom and workabilities. But here's the other thing, Shalini. All over the world, more significant, larger democracies punish politicians by keeping them poor. So the less we can pay them, the harder we can make their lives, the more we can squeeze them, the more we think it's better for democracy. That's actually worse, because what do we do with the businesses we rely on? We know that their profitability and their effectiveness as business institutions relies on rewarding executives and decision makers who improve the quality of the service, the product, the supply chain, the marketing and the outcomes. When it comes to politicians, we seek to squeeze them as tightly as possible. This disincentivizes another generation from entering political life because it's easier to enter banking life where you can have high pay and high reward and privacy. 
Now, if we're going to be serious about democracy, we need to reward properly those who take critical, cataclysmically huge decisions on our behalf. Reward them as we would do executives. But we need to put in training programs. And I would urge Davos to lead with the European Union, with the UK and with the United States to invest heavily in a college, a university of political futures. Because what we do need to see is a school of democratic development. There is no global system for identifying and recognizing and developing leaders for the next generation who will take political office as the integrity option for their future. Without it, the best people will opt out and go for pay in the private world. Thank you very, very much for this uh, really insightful look into the House of Lords debate as our uh, starting point, but then branching out from there into looking at uh, world affairs in general with a very interesting um, recommendation for reshaping, retooling our democratic political life. I'm an optimist. I always have been an optimist. I believe in democracy but I believe in intelligent equity of opportunity for everyone in the wider society. I believe we have the opportunity to change our systems for the good of all, but we're not going to do that if we insist on old institutions and we prioritize the privilege of the limited and the few. So this has been an important conversation for all our futures. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's uh, have a quick wrap up of some of the main points of this fascinating discussion. It's ironic that an undemocratic, unelected institution like the House of Lords was uh, the site of insightful debate on the backlash against democracies worldwide, but also, of course, in Britain. Let's not forget that Brexit was a democratic decision by a thin margin, democratic nevertheless, but it was still an unwise decision. We are witnessing many uncertainties around the future of democracy worldwide, not only its faltering, but also its unsuccessful imposition on societies like Afghanistan and many countries in the Middle East. Democratic systems and democratic decision makers can falter and fail if the decision makers are ill-informed and if their character is wanting. What we need is benign, purposeful, humble, public service-oriented leadership, not leaders prone to holding people to ransom on false promises once made. Politicians tend to get stuck in the glue of their own earlier positions. A mature democracy needs them to move on and need to face changes. Fear-mongering, fear-mongering about immigration, about lack of control over borders, over self-preservation of the British nation, those were the fears that fueled the catastrophic decision leading to Brexit. One reason for that decision was media disinformation. We need independent media, which comes with a strong commitment to public expenditure, which would then assure independent journalism, national as well as international, 
which is able to hold those governing us to account. Democracy depends on what it can deliver. One of its purposes is to deliver equity, to deliver social development and social protection. Decentralization of decision-making is only one remedy for the ills that we are witnessing today. What we need are not only better leaders, but better remunerated leaders, since there are hardly any incentives to enter political life today. We need to invest more in the development of a new generation, a younger generation of political leaders who are rewarded properly for the important decisions that they take on our behalf. What we need then is a school for our democratic futures. This was the eighth episode of season four. Thank you very much for listening. Join us also for the next episode in two weeks' time. My guest will be Marsha Giesen of The New Yorker. Please go back and listen to any episodes you might have missed. And of course, let your friends know about this podcast if you're enjoying it. You can stay in touch with the work of the CEU at www.cu.edu and the Albert Hirschman Center on Democracy at www.graduateinstitute.ch backslash democracy.